I first started to think of coming to Santa Rosa, I did some research and read about Luther Burbank and something that he said was, of all the soils he's ever found, Santa Rosa's is among the greatest. And then came this byline, and the people aren't bad either. <laughs> I was reminded of that yesterday when more than 20 new members were, uh, candidates were together in a class, and during the sharing time, they were sharing what they love about this church, and many of them said it was the music. They just appreciate the music, and then came this byline, and the preaching's not bad either. <laughs> so with that, I'll begin. <laughs> Two things we Americans value as cultural norms, very important to us, is our freedom and our individuality. We place a high value on freedom to go where we want, to do what we want, and to live how we want. And when combined with the philosophical shift away from moral absolutes to the current moral relativity of our day, then a passage like the one Leslie just read sounds archaic to our way of thinking. Some might even scoff at its exhortations, hearing them as stifling and restrictive to the way we live. Ironically, this is precisely what Paul intended. That we learn to use our freedom in Christ to live differently from the world for the benefit of others. Not, for our, not to our own advantage and our own self-fulfillment, but for the sake of others. French nobleman Alexis de Tocqueville, who visited America in the 1830s, observed that this Christian approach to freedom allowed America to be generous in granting civil freedoms outlined in the Bill of Rights. Christianity's function in society served to restrain us from abusing freedom and provided the necessi necessary discipline for us to use it wisely and rightly. The Tocqueville said, Christianity shaped our values as Americans, what we called, what he called our habits of the heart, such that we stopped short of using freedom as an excuse to indulge our appetites and satisfy our own self-interests. And that allowed for our society to flourish. I don't think that could be said of America today. More importantly, I don't think it could be said of the church today. Nevertheless, what was true for Paul's day is true for us. And so these words are important. How we choose to live affects not only our lives as followers of Christ, but it affects the lives of those around us. It affects our society and our world. So Paul makes an appeal to his readers to live according to a different pattern than the one you had been living. Don't imitate the godless world which is uninformed and darkened in its understanding, but imitate God instead is what he says. And God as we know him incarnate in Jesus loved us and gave his life for us. 
So the ethic of a Christian derives from a demonstration of God's love sacrificially given to redeem you and me. That's the starting point. Such self-giving love stands in opposition to a cultural pattern of self-indulgence. So listen to it in the message because it's very clear and very pointed. That's no life for you. You learned Christ. Everything connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. And then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. Do you buy packaged lettuce ever? I don't know about you, but it, it's both a blessing and a curse because if you don't use it quickly, it gets slimy in a hurry. And then you open up the bag and it's like there's a lot of good pieces in there, but it just takes a few of those slimy ones that makes you go, ugh. So then you think, okay, I'll pour it out and separate it. And it just doesn't work. It's rotten. Throw it out. And I hate throwing out food that could be used. But I hate even more the taste of slimy lettuce. <laughs> Paul says, don't, don't do it. Don't live there. Of those who follow this godless pattern, Paul says that they've given themselves up to sensuality. Their sense of godlike love has become perverted by lust. And the reason he mentions this is in that part of the world, in Asia Minor at that time in which he wrote, the prevailing religious practice was the worship of Artemis, also known as Diana. And worship of this fertility goddess included acts of prostitution and sexual orgies. So this was rampant in their culture, very permissive. And Paul says, that is not the life you have learned in Christ. Indeed, he goes on and says, we're to abstain from all sexual immorality and immaturity, impurity. It is immaturity, but immorality and impurity, which is circumstances where one's sexual appetite is used merely as a means of pleasure without any sense of responsibility or care for, the, for one's partner. It's just for pleasure only, for self-satisfaction. And then Paul throws in words like greed and covetousness, which in this context is a way of looking upon others as a sex object and desiring someone else's body for one's personal gratification. And Paul says, no, that's not how to live as a Christian. Now, unfortunately, Whenever Paul speaks of sex, it sort of needs qualification because we in the church are not good at talking about it. Uh, we either say too little or when we do talk about it, we talk about it in exaggerated terms as if it's the problem and it's not. Sex is not the problem here. It's the heart that Paul's trying to address. 
the fact that we want our way, that we want our individuality and our freedom, and we want what we want. If you read the entirety of the Bible, sex is God's gift of intimacy and love expressed between a man and a woman committed to one another in the covenant of a marriage. And sexual activity that's done at the expense of someone else is never considered consistent with God's will. Another thing we do in church is we overemphasize sexual behavior as the worst of sins. But such a view misstates the nature and severity of how the Bible presents sin. It never talks about sin as a list of do this and don't do that. As if you can somehow avoid it or, or abstain from it. Sin is what breaks down our relationship with God and with one another. And any form of it is serious. There's no gradation of what's, of what's worse. So what it means to imitate God is to visibly demonstrate what life in Jesus looks like. Again, the message gets right at it. Watch what God does and then do it. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. He is... His love was not cautious, but extravagant. And he didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. So, love like that. Learning to live and love like Jesus was beautifully stated in the sermon given by presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, the Reverend Michael Curry, during yesterday's royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. With gospel fervor, Curry said, there's power in love. And he said that the reason for that has to do with its source, which is God himself. And then... With an African-American preaching cadence, which I don't have, Curry set out the dimensions and directions of God's love with lines like this. There's power in love to help and heal when nothing else can. There's power in love to lift up and liberate when nothing else will. There's power in love to show us the way to live the power to change our lives and to change the world. Jesus sacrificed his life for the good of others, for the well-being of us all. Love like that's not selfish and self-centered, but it's sacrificial and becomes redemptive. Then he wanted us to think and imagine a world where love is the way. Families where love is the way. Neighborhoods and communities where love is the way. To imagine governments and nations where love is the way. 
Imagine business and commerce where love is the way. Imagine this tired old world where love is the way. When love is the way. Unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive. Then no child's going to go hungry ever again in this world. When love is the way, we'll let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness like an ever-flowing brook. When love is the way, poverty will become history. When love is the way, the earth becomes a sanctuary. When love is the way, we lay down our swords and shields down by the riverside to study war no more. When love is the way, there's plenty of room for all God's children. This is a new heaven, a new earth. This is a new humanity. I tried to imagine the Apostle Paul listening in to this sermon thinking, way to go, Curry. Which I hope we'll all be saying later tonight. <laughs> okay, sorry, that was cheap. That was cheap. The point of Paul's various exhortations in this passage have to do with how we live a life of love in community with each other for the sake of the flourishing of God's world. So instructions for dealing with anger become important, not letting it get the best of us so that we lash out and hurt or seek revenge. But we learn to control our own needs, wants, and rights for the sake of others, for the good of others. Instructions about not telling lies or living a life of pretense. Instructions for how we use our words because words matter. Instead of using them to put others down or gossip or spout off silly, meaningless phrases. We need, we need to learn to say what helps, what encourages, what builds up. To speak language that resounds with thanksgiving and gratitude. Paul continues his ethical comparison and uses the image of light and darkness. And he exhorts us to lead lives as children of light. Think of what's like when you're in a place of darkness and you see light off in the distance. Your focus is there. You've drawn there. You start moving in that direction. And then once you come into the sphere of that light, you don't keep focusing on the light. You don't look at the light anymore, but rather you look at what the light shines upon, what it calls attention to. That's the nature of how light works around us. To be a person of light is to make the God the absolute center of our lives so that everything revolves around his purpose and will. And the result is we produce fruit, fruit of relationships that are right, what Paul calls righteousness, fruit of justice and of goodness, of looking out for the rights of others ahead of our own. Where there's light, we discern what pleases God and we do it. 
Where there's light, we expose deeds of darkness for what they really are. Empty, destructive. And finally, where light reflects God's presence, the penetration transforms whatever it illumines. It becomes illuminated as well. Last year at Halloween, I had door duty. There weren't many kids that came to the door, but um, I used to always enjoy it. Um, but on this particular occasion, I opened the door to see a boy about seven years of age, and I recognized his orange jumpsuit and helmet as a Star Wars uniform, and I was excited but I couldn't remember the exact title of who he was. And so I mistakenly blurted out, are you a Jedi Knight? Whatever confidence and, and pride the boy had, it left him. Just completely deflated him. And with a look of disappointment, he looked back at me and said, no, I'm an X-wing fighter pilot for the Rebel Alliance. And with that, he just walked away. <laughs> and I thought, you didn't get your candy. I mean, there's a, there's a purpose here. So I said, no, 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 wait, come back, come back. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I didn't get it right. Um, here, here's some candy. Here's more. I didn't think it mattered that I was wrong. I was in the ballpark. <laughs> but it did. Wow, did it matter to him. People who read Paul's letters with these instructions for living a God-directed life think it doesn't matter that we get it all right or pay attention to all the details and the nuances. After all, as long as we're in the ballpark, no, it matters. Just like it mattered to that Star Wars fan, it matters. How we live matters to God. Speaking truth in places of lies matters to our unity as a congregation and as a people. Using our words for good matters. Preventing our anger from doing harm matters. Not pursuing our self-interest and personal gratification matters to the stability and flourishing of those around us. Reflecting God's light in a world of darkness matters. Being under the influence of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit versus the influence of alcohol or drugs or any addictive behavior, it matters. And as we've been sadly reminded, it matters in our schools. It matters in our businesses and in our government corridors. It matters in our homes and in our marriages and in our friendships. It matters whether our lives are centered on God and reflect God's light in this world, or whether it's only about us. 
it matters. God, help us to be the kind of people that allows God's will to be done in this world. Amen.